0: My name is Dario Hasenstab, I have two degrees in international affairs and I'm here with Balder Hagrets, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze the United Kingdom for the third time already through the lens of the Western bubble, because while Western societies have strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Hi, Balder. Why are we speaking about this topic again? Why are we speaking about the United Kingdom so many times?
1: Hi, I, Dario. It's almost as if we need to be on some kind of UK watch every six months, right? Just to see how far the decline has already spread uh, in the country. Uh, well, the thing is about United Kingdom, it, it does take a special place within the Western bubble. It takes a special place within Western society. It was one of the first countries to create what we would now maybe identify as democratic systems. It has a very long parliamentary history. And um, it has always been at the forefront of this, if you like, Western export of values and ideas to the rest of the world. And we see this country being in significant decline. And as a result, it is not just about the... United Kingdom itself, it's also about what can happen to the Western world in general. The United Kingdom is dependent on common law, um, so it doesn't have the written constitution in the sense that the United States has it and most continental uh, European countries have it. And what you very clearly see is that a lot of this UK decline is because common law requires a basic sense of decency, of ethics, of standards and they've gone out of the window uh, this 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 basic decency is eroding and with that the whole system is going with it and as a result it's it's basically a warning sign not just for the british population that has a very significant challenge ahead of itself if if it wants to restore some kind of basic structures and and a well functioning mm, political system but it's also a warning sign for The rest of the Western world, this is what can happen if you lose touch with what is, at the basic level, simply decent behavior by society. And what are the facts?
0: Since our last episode on the United Kingdom in October 2022, the UK has remained under conservative Tory leadership. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak ran unopposed to succeed Liz Truss less than two months after he lost the vote for the Tory leadership to her in 2022. Sunak has been in politics since 2015 and is the youngest prime minister since 1812. He has a background in finance with a, with an MBA from Stanford and experience at work, working at Goldman Sachs before he moved to the public sector. On November 13th of 2023, Sunak dismissed Suella Braverman, Home Secretary, replacing her with Foreign Secretary James Cleverly. To replace Cleverley as Foreign Minister, Sunak turned to David Cameron, the former Prime Minister who initiated the Brexit referendum. Cameron initiated this vote, expecting it to fail, ending the debate on the United Kingdom belonging to the European Union. Instead, Cameron resigned in disgrace in the summer of 2016 after the Brexit vote had passed. Returning to government wasn't procedurally easy, as he had no seat in Parliament and had to be granted a lifelong peerage in the House of Lords, an unparalleled move.
1: What is the bubble?
0: So when we talk about the bubble, um, let's first go into some specifics about the United Kingdom, simply because I'm not sure how many of our listeners are aware. I personally struggle a little bit with UK politics as well. It's simply, it's not standard within the West um why is it significant that the United Kingdom doesn't really have a constitution? And then what is important when you don't have a constitution? I mean, it's, for me as a constitution haver, it's a bit difficult to, to think about this.
1: Britain doesn't have a constitution in the US sense of the word, right? with a clearly codified document that allows you to point at a certain part, like the First Amendment or the Fourth Amendment, and say, these are my rights. Instead, Britain depends on a whole set of conventions and um, judicial decisions over time that are now sometimes vaguely referred to as the British Constitution. And this makes sense from a historical perspective, because Britain has a very, very long trajectory of creating the system that is in place in 2023. If you like, all the way starting in 1215, when the Magna Carta was signed. And ever since then, um, there have been these further steps solidifying, if you like, parliamentary democracy as we know it today in the UK, without ever actually anyone creating one kind of summary of what it is supposed to be one kind of constitution that says these are your rights and these are your duties etc and that means that that very long-term historical process has always depended on a certain type of ethical framework a certain type of decency a knowing what is right and what is wrong and understanding the importance of upholding tradition. If a uh, judicial decision was taken 200 years ago, you have to kind of respect that still uh, because there's no overriding constitution to tell you otherwise. So this is one of the reasons why the British system is so based on traditions and why you have all that folklore, if you like, in British Parliament with black Rod banging on the door and demanding that the lower house uh, come to uh, the upper house because the Queen demands it. All these kinds of traditional steps that maybe in the rest of the world we sometimes look at a little bit mockingly or smilingly, but those traditions exist as part of an overall sense of respect for basic values and decency, right? They're, they're, they're the, the outward, the visible part of what every British politician should carry inside of them. And Without that kind of ethical sense, without that decency, the system starts collapsing because there are no hard limits to overreach, to abuse, to corruption in the way that hard limits do exist, for example, in the United States, where you can see the system fighting back against Donald Trump when Donald Trump was... President, there was a very clear fight between the legal and the executive branches of government. That kind of thing doesn't exist in the UK. The UK depends on an overall consensus of what is right and wrong.
0: (laughs) And this consensus, this decency, and these traditions that has slowly started to erode over the last eight to ten years at least this is right this is the time frame in which I have been able to observe this maybe it has been a like maybe it has been eroding since day one but particularly with Brexit or basically after Brexit I don't know at least from right from the continental view this seemed to be a bit eroding right so you had Dave Cameron um, stepping down as prime minister after the referendum which does seem like something that you would do in politics right okay I failed this is i no longer see myself fit to serve i no longer carry the mission of the country so i will step down okay that's something we could agree on is the right thing to do from a politician's perspective and since then it has become rather chaotic and i think this is best symbolized by seeing how many different prime ministers they've had in the last few years um a lot five um and so these like these processes that are really fundamental to the system have been eroding
1: well, I wouldn't want to give David Cameron too much credit here because, um, yes, it was the principled choice to actually resign. However, he also had no political capital left. He was done. Um, his party was torn apart and he was seen as the cause of that. So in that sense, you know, the, there was it was inev- inevitable that he would have to go. But what is interesting about David Cameron is the reason why he even started the Brexit vote in the first place, right? So in 2016 was the referendum and um, to David Cameron's surprise and dismay, the British voters voted in favor of Brexit, which he didn't expect initially when he called it. And the reason why he had called it in the first place was because he was consistently being bombarded from the right of his party and people like Nigel Farage and others, UKIP, which is a protest was a protest party to, to, to get Britain out of uh, the European Union. Uh, and he thought, okay, if I'm going to put a referendum in place, I'm going to give power to the people, and they will show that the majority of the British population still wants to stay within the EU. And then, for, at least for a little bit of time, I will shut up those on the extreme right, and I can actually go on with policymaking, and I can go on with what I need to do. And there, of course, he made an enormous miscalculation. He, he, he never realized the extent to which the British people were angry with the system and fed up with politics and how eager they were to show that dismay through a referendum like Brexit vote. So he thought I, I, this is a political move to just calm things down, and instead he created chaos for his country because he never foresaw that Brexit would actually happen.
0: Right. These are some of the first symptoms of decay, uh, I, would, I, would, I would say, because you already... right. I mean, I'm not sure how prominent the position was within the UK before, that people were unhappy with where the country was heading, maybe unhappy with their personal situation, and then blaming the well the UK's membership in the European Union for this. So you suddenly see that Cameron is stepping down. Now we have uh, Theresa May uh, come into, into spotlight who is kind of trying to get Brexit done, right? Well, <laughs> it's a bit difficult to say because that's the that's the slogan that Boris Johnson ran with. But you have her just trying to now exercise the will of the people.
1: Yes, um, even though she was skeptical herself as well of Brexit to a large extent, uh, she is very much still in that line of politicians. You know, she worked for David Cameron, his home secretary, secretary, and um, she's in the line of politicians that is still trying to find sort of the middle ground in politics. Uh, but in many ways, it's too late, right? So, Brexit has happened in terms of the referendum. Now there is an impossible set of choices in front of Theresa May and in front of London because they created a monster that they couldn't control because nobody had actually defined what Brexit would mean, what it would look like. Nobody had solved the problem with Northern Ireland. Uh, the question in the referendum had sim- simply be: do you want to stay or do you want to leave? Without, okay, if we leave, what does it look like? Theresa May has this impossible task. And this is what you get when you give populism and voters too much power over these kinds of things, right? Voters, the electorates, they vote very quickly with their emotions, with their intuitive connection with a certain uh, politician or their dislike for a certain politician. They do not have the full set of facts in front of them. And now Theresa May has to make something out of a choice that was always going to be deeply deeply harmful to the bridge population and so whatever route she would try to take it would become a problem it would lead to further damage to the bridge population and therefore creating a vicious circle because people uh, being damaged in terms of their business, in terms of their income, in terms of their ability to travel, would then turn even more to the extreme. And that's exactly what happened afterwards. Uh,
0: that's what happened, right? Because I remember there were multiple attempts to get, to get basically her version of Brexit through Parliament. She failed because... Well, Labour wasn't going to vote for it. Um, some of the Tories were basically with her. A lot of the Tories were also against her. There was this camp that really wanted to get Brexit done. There was this camp that wanted to have Brexit, but in a sensible manner. She had no majority. And this then kind of accumulated in new elections. Um, then you have these elections. And here you have something interesting happen where then Boris Johnson, right, one of the biggest voices for Brexit gets a really big campaign going and I think he also benefited a lot from that Brexit blues right so that frustration with uh, we okay we kind of understood now that Brexit is not a good idea but get it done with please we've been talking about this for three years and so Boris Johnson now wins with a huge huge wave um, and a lot of new Tory members uh, or a, a lot of new Tory politicians come into parliament some of the more moderate ones, right, that were with Theresa May, get kind of pushed out. So you have a change of politicians and of the type of person that is within Parliament now. And let's just say that these new people were, are not as decent or weren't as decent as maybe some of the people that were there before.
1: No, because the problem is that anyone who just shouts something like, let's get Brexit done, which was essentially Boris Johnson's slogan, is someone who is willfully um simplifying a very complex problem that has been created by this referendum a referendum that should never have happened and is trying to appeal to those masses who want to be heard and said hey we went through this referendum now it has to happen anyone including Boris Johnson and obviously Theresa May and David Cameron understood that getting brexit done in itself is a meaningless phrase meaningless phrase get done in what sense how done in what direction how do you want to redefine your relationship with europe none of those questions were dealt with by boris johnson he was also by the way aided by a dysfunctional labor party at the time with infighting between the Corbynites, if you like and the the new labor crowd from that goes back to tony blair Um, and so boris johnson could get away with just shouting essentially, I am the one who's going to get Brexit done without ever having to identify the problems related to it. Whereas someone with a little bit more of a, if you like, intellectual serious approach such as as Theresa May, would still, at a very minimum, be hesitant to inflict damage upon her own country. Boris Johnson had no such hesitation, and he formed a cult around him of Brexiteers, he came already from this cult, that basically pushed out the the decent uh, members of the Tory party in parliament. And thereby creating a long-term structure of increasingly populist, increasingly, if you like, manipulative and aggressive and extremist parliamentarians who become unmanageable because these are not people who are interested in seriously tackling this very significant challenges Britain faces instead they are interested in playing games in in winning the political fight. there are they are interested in um being popular rather than doing the right thing and then the whole system that we've discussed before that is so based on decent sort of honor um uh, decent honor and and behavior that is consistent with traditions and behavior that is consistent with what is respectable that all goes out of the window because they have no longer any connection to those kinds of long term pillars of British political society And you
0: see this very quickly then, so as soon as Boris Johnson was in in, in power, I mean he did get Brexit done, to be fair I mean, uh, some form of uh, some form of the deal was was then passed in uh, in Parliament. Um, you had a lot of problems with that, right? There, there was a lot of unclarity still with regards to Northern Ireland. Uh, I mean, there still is. Um, but you also see an erosion of the political culture in the UK, right? And this kind of coincides with uh, with with uh, COVID. And then you have the reason why Boris Johnson kind of gets out of power, is right? Because there was just one political scandal too much. Uh, which, which, in that sense, then were, were were those COVID parties, right? <laughs> that were that were happening in, in in Downing Street number ten, but there was also a long list of other very nice little scandals that Boris Johnson, right, tried to pull um, on on Parliament, uh, on the Queen, on the system, and on the population.
1: Well, and what's really important to understand with these situations is that. It's not so much just about Boris Johnson and it's not so much about those COVID parties, right? The the press has written endless articles about COVID parties, but they are all a symptom. They are all a symptom of something much deeper, of a political crowd, a political culture that has given up on trying to actually seriously tackle the issues that the country faces and instead are completely disconnected from those very long traditions and, and and customs that hold the system together. Instead, they are playing games. They're continuously playing games with their electorate. They're lying to their electorate. They, they're lying to each other. They're infighting. Um, it, it creates a very toxic environment in, in the, t- the days of Boris Johnson within Parliament, within... Um, Even just among conservatives, there was a lot of distrust. And what you then get is that those few remaining, if you like, respectable politicians, they have to leave because they no longer have a place in that kind of culture. So it weeds out the good guys and it leaves a system filled with people who are willing to manipulate and who have no longer any sense of responsibility towards their country. And that is very difficult to reverse. And that is not simply a matter of getting rid of Boris Johnson, as we saw afterwards.
0: Hmm. I mean, this culture, I mean, we've discussed this in detail in the two episodes we did almost exactly one year ago in the UK, especially everything happening around List Trust, happening around the last days of Boris Johnson in office. So for the listeners who are interested in that, make sure you listen to these episodes. But one headline that caught my attention uh, this week, right, in preparation for this episode, was that... There has been an increasing number of sexual harassment cases within British Parliament. Which is right which is another symptom or another example of of any form of decency, right? I mean, now we're not talking about parliamentary decency and, and not having a constitution. Now we're just talking about let's not harass others sexually, please. And the fact that this is going up tells you again there is another there's another culture within British Parliament now that is really, really concerning.
1: And a lot of politicians actually deciding um, that they don't want to be part of that anymore. So if you are a decent human being and you're currently working in the British Parliament, your life is tough because you're continuously surrounded with this kind of aggression, this kind of corruption, this kind of deeply unethical, immoral behavior. And it's becomes almost impossible to fight it right and the result is that you are likely to leave and do something better with your life leaving parliament to even more people who are willing to engage in this kind of unethical behavior and creating a a tone of it being the standard all of a sudden the standard is this toxic toxic culture this kind of abusive culture and that is not just a problem for people working there that's a problem for the country because let's face it if you are one of those people who is not in parliament because you genuinely feel a sense of obligation towards your country instead it is like your playground to get up in the ranks to make promotion to become chancellor of the exchequer or whatever is it is that your dream in the long run will be um you the political and policy choices that you make will not be consistent they will not be based on a long term vision, and that is very visible in the way that uh, policy is being made at the moment in London.
0: Mm. And what kind of symbolizes this incremental change to me, right? Not the sudden change that there was a revolution of Boris Johnson storming into the parliament and saying, you know what, from now on, we shall no longer follow rules and sexually harass each other, right? That didn't happen. We are talking about a very slow process here. And I think what, what captures all of this very well is I think if you had asked, if you had depicted parliament as it is today to someone in the United Kingdom 20 years ago and you had asked him, do you think that this is extreme? I'm pretty sure the majority of britons would have said yes this is extreme and this sounds terrible we don't want this to happen however if you now look at the at current surveys about this right where if you ask if you, if you currently ask britons do you th- believe that the tory party is extreme only 30 percent of of uh, britons are actually seeing it that way and i think that you can also see that the standards of the population have just dropped right i mean you have David Cameron, okay, you know, Theresa May, that's a step down. Boris Johnson, that's a big step down. Uh, Liz Truss, oh, what a ma- major step down. I mean, at some point, you just become very used to that new norm and things that have may have been perceived as very extreme th- 20 years ago are just perceived as normal today.
1: Yes, and it, this is a typical process where the extremes pull the center towards them, right? So even though, exactly as you said, Nigel Farage 20 years ago was considered an extremist, every parliamentarian now uses the same kind of language as Farage, and so therefore they're no longer extreme. So someone starts a populist or extremist movement, and at the beginning we can still identify it, but over time we are pulled in that direction, and uh, the the, the extreme becomes the new center and this is exactly by the way what you see also with labor right labor has moved along in that sense as well it's not as if labor has the same policies and principles that they had 20 years ago instead labor now is to the right of what the tories were 20 years ago to uh, policy wise and this is not before any um, listeners uh get confused here this is not us or me arguing that somehow the left is better than the right. It is about showing how that pattern works, that a extreme perspective can become the new normal, and whether it's on the left or on the right of the political spectrum. And currently, Labour is what used to be the Tory centre, and the Tories are what used to be the extreme right. Right. I mean, we,
0: we've seen this in the United States as well. Right, so Trump uh, took the Republican Party a bit further to the right, and then I mean it makes sense from a from a Democratic or from a Labour perspective. Well, if if Republicans are leaving a bit of space in the centre to let move let, let us move into the centre, we get more votes, we will win the next election, and are they moving even further to the right? Right, and then it becomes a vicious cycle where the party that's moving further to the extreme now is even moving even further to the extreme because it depends on this populist narrative. To still draw in voters and with that you see that entire movement of the system um, and that's that's dangerous because now those positions on the left are completely unoccupied or i mean in another example could be all the positions on the right and that just leaves well it, it creates an environment in which we talk more about narratives and more about people than about the actual contents of the policy because if if the entire party system has moved to one side then they, they will most likely be very close on a policy level, very far away on a polarization level. But the ideological debate that you would actually want, right? something that we've talked about in the Western Bubble podcast in the, in the past, that you want two sides or maybe three, four, that are ideologically opposed to each other and they're competing for the best ideas. No, Now you're no longer competing about ideas, you're competing about attention and the ideological clashes are being left behind.
1: And this is... Perfectly illustrated by the current position of Keir Starmer's Labour Party, much more than the Tories, because the Tories shout out things and, you know, the anti-immigrants and all that. But uh, they're not afraid to still look for sort of extremist positions because they are now entitled to do that within their own party culture. But the Labour Party is consistently refusing over the past few years to take any position on anything, let, let alone any ideology, right? They refuse to take any policy positions because their only narrative to the British people is we are uh, the decent ones still. We are the ones for you who who feels a little bit uncomfortable with this very aggressive anti-immigrant rhetoric, who feels a little bit uncomfortable with Boris Johnson's breaking of the law, who feels a little bit uncomfortable with um, the COVID parties, uh, those kinds of things. We are here, we're basically not going to tell you how how we're going to run the country because we don't want to take any policy position we're not interested in an ideological conversation what we're interested in is being slightly more respectable managers of this country than the tories because the tories are no longer um, using the kind of language that we feel comfortable with and that is incredibly damaging right a labor party that has no position of its own And it is just saying, you know, look at how corrupt the stories are. We will be a little bit less corrupt. Look at how unpleasant their language is. We will use a little bit more pleasant language. And as a result, politics is essentially that. There is no longer any real debate happening. It is simply about ethical procedures, and that's it. What's the international relations context? And what
0: this leads to internationally is obviously we, from the continental European perspective, um, we enjoy it. Uh, there's a, well, I mean, enjoy it from an entertainment perspective. It's funny to talk about uh, Boris Johnson. It's funny to talk about Liz I mean, it's, it certainly gives us topics for the podcast. If you now see this from a more serious perspective, it's really hurtful um, to see, you know, the United Kingdom uh, going down this way. However, it also takes away one of the traditionally very strong voices for Western liberal democracy or for liberal democracy. Because if we are not taking the United Kingdom seriously, the United Kingdom is not taking itself seriously, then how are countries like India, like China, Brazil, Nigeria, uh, Indonesia, how are they supposed to take the United Kingdom seriously and maybe as a model that could be working?
1: And this is exactly why we talk so much about the UK in this podcast rather than you know, maybe France or or, or Germany or or other countries um, of equal importance uh, because the UK does have this symbolic position in the world. It has its history. It has the British Empire uh, in its past. And uh, when the UK falls, it's very likely that uh, the whole ideology behind it falls, right? The whole road that started in 1215... Um, will at some point collapse essentially because they've always been the canary in the coal mine they've always been the the sign of where the world was heading and if they are now a sign of where western democracy is heading boy are we in for a right because things are gonna go wrong B- things have gone wrong in the uk already deeply wrong and it's very difficult to see a way out um And if the UK cannot manage, how can all those other countries look at liberal democracy or the Anglo-Saxon model as something positive, as something productive? And can you explain to our listeners what is the problem?
0: And apart from the lack of this role model of liberal democracy then, which uh, lack of that is incredibly damaging, and I mean, as you said, you you know you always said a lot in class in particular that europe is kind of 20 years behind the united states and that these developments will will happen here as well maybe similar with the united kingdom and we do see similar developments all over the continent where just these very strong foundations that are important for 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 liberal democracy are eroding we're moving more and more into this into this uh, yeah difficult era so that in itself is is very damaging and i think that you can see this again very particularly with the United Kingdom. And one of the examples here is um, kind of the reason why we recorded this episode, uh, David Cameron. Um, Because yes, I I said something positive about him at the beginning, right? He stepped out at the right time. But then unfortunately, um, right? If if this decency and if these traditions are eroding, right? You've messed up once, now go into the private sector, make a lot of money, and you've had your chance. David Cameron uh, didn't really have it. No, he, to quote him, was, was, was bored shitless, um, right? This was one of his interviews he gave to The Sun. And he is basically driven by power because money, he already has money, right? He comes just like all the other UK prime ministers. He comes from that upper class, Eton, Oxford, educated, and he really just wants to play that political game and be, and be important, be in power. So for him, it was interesting to become a foreign minister.
1: Indeed, and that means also that so there are no serious consequences to his um, terrible policy making before policy making that, by the way, comes exactly from this kind of attitude that every life is a little bit of a game. If you're upper class, right, if, if you know that you don't have to worry about getting bread on the table, then and you know that even if you lose your job, even if you're incompetent, you're still going to be fine in life. You're going to be able to send your children to a good school and all those kinds of things. And. Um, everything becomes a little bit of fun. And that's very much what you see in the David Cameron and also Boris Johnson crowd, two people who have gone also to Eton in the UK, which is basically the the typical example of this kind of attitude towards life, right? Hey, let's try it. Let's have a Brexit referendum. And if it fails, well, doesn't matter. Well, it matters for all of those millions of people deeply, deeply affected by it, but it doesn't matter for David Cameron because here he is, he gets invited back to cabinet now as as foreign secretary. Uh, which is very typical for his whole life. Whatever happens, you will always get new opportunities if you are in that political upper class and the economic upper class. Um, and, and the the result the the result is that. There is no sense of accountability. Rizzi Sunak is now trying to go back to a political situation, from before all the extremism, from before uh, Brexit, you know, it's it's sort of saying, if, if you get David Cameron into your cabinet, it's saying, let's go back to two thousand and twelve, essentially, <laughs> let's be like that again, but it's too late. It's impossible to go back to that situation. The precedents have been set. Rules have been broken. Um, Boris Johnson did break the law um, various times, not just with parties, but also with provoking parliaments. The Supreme Court clearly stated after um, they went through provoking Parliament and maybe we should explain this, this was essentially suspending Parliament for a number of weeks, not to have oversight during the Brexit process, not to have parliamentary oversight, not to let um, the political system check whether Brexit was actually going to happen. Boris Johnson broke the law uh, by provoking Parliament, and yet he got away with it. Now, David Cameron got away with his bad uh, decision making. There is absolutely no sense of accountability anymore, and therefore, you cannot go back to a world where everything was a little bit more decent, because decency has gone out of the window.
0: Uh, I mean, on top of the fact that there's no accountability for what David Cameron did um, with regards to uh, his Brexit referendum decision, there also isn't a lot of ca- accountability and oversight right now in his position as foreign minister because, I, so I read this out during the fact sheet, right, David Cameron is not part of parliament um, or wasn't. He has now been appointed uh, to, the House of, uh, to the House of Lords and there is no parliamentary oversight um, from the House of Commons over his actions as a member of the House of Lords and as uh, foreign minister.
1: Yeah, so that is a very strange situation. So he's now a life peer. But uh, for those listeners who don't know, typically if you're part of the British cabinet, you're a member of parliament sitting on the benches, in this case in the front, and you follow the rules of the House of Commons. You follow the rules of parliament. And Cameron not having to actually identify as such and not having that kind of direct oversight means that the oversight will be more on Rishi Sunak as his boss, if you like. But that creates a very weird, difficult situation. Um, Especially, once again, because of the tradition of keeping the House of Lords very separate from the House of Commons, right? You don't want an overlap between those two. You want the House of Lords, like in any well-functioning democratic system, you want to have a Senate, that actually independently and critically looks at the behavior of government. That once again becomes more difficult. So this is yet again a perfect example of how basic traditions, basic decency, basic norms and implicit rules are being broken, are being um, disrespected. And that would be a problem in any society, but especially in a society such as Britain, which is all about those traditions and it's all about that basic respect and that basic decency. And what now?
0: So, what happens now? I mean, so Rishi Sunak has been, I would say, relatively quiet. At least he has been off my radar for the last year, right? I mean, we talked a lot about it in October of 2022. He comes into power. He does better than Liz Truss. That's not difficult. Um, now he's back on the map with uh, putting uh, appointing uh, David Cameron. Um, he's managing the country. <laughs> I would say, right, one of those big criticisms that we've um, issued or or yeah, in the past where we're living in times where Western leaders are no longer leaders, but they're basically managers, and they're just kind of managing the problems, not really putting an idea forward, kind of a result of this lack of ideological battles Um, and there will be an election soon but what's I mean what's what's the outcome of all of this it seems like British politics are just gonna continue to exist in that way right but there will be no significant changes kind of reversing the trends that we're seeing
1: no so well his his intuitive um, approach seems to be to go back to a more business oriented um, way of running the country away from all the drama, and the cat is out of the box. You know, they're, they're, he cannot control those dynamics anymore, um, which was, by the way, very visible uh, last week with the sacking of Suella Braverman, uh, his home secretary, and that was the way that David Cameron could be offered eventually the job of foreign secretary. Uh, Suella Braverman, or, uh, an extremist on the extreme right of the Tory party, um, gets fired for basically breaking again traditions, rules. She um, continuously kept expressing views that weren't in line with cabinet, and Sunak could not control her. Sunak could not actually keep her as a productive, productive member of his cabinet she resigns uh sorry she gets fired she writes a resignation letter um essentially uh saying to sunak that he is terrible again breaking with tradition if you read the letter and it's it's fascinating it's way more aggressive than any letter has ever been written in british politics about a secretary losing her job Uh, it is once again breaking with that overall overarching theme of respect and understanding that there are basic red lines that you do not cross. All the red lines are being crossed at the moment and Sunak cannot do anything about it anymore, even if he wanted to. He is trying to steady the ship, but the ship is deeply sinking and, and there, uh, that's it. Um, so what's going to happen is that the Tories will lose the next elections because fortunately still a lot of people in Britain feel uncomfortable with um, the very ugly rhetoric coming from the Tory Party—they feel very uncomfortable with the terrible policy making um, regarding Brexit, reg- regarding immigration, and those kinds of things. So Labour is likely going is li- likely to win the next election. But as we already stated, <laughs> Labour doesn't offer anything in particular except for being less corrupt and having a little bit of a more friendly tone towards society than the Tories do. They have not taken any positions. In fact, they worked very hard to not take any positions on anything, whether it's Israel or whether it is the NHS or whether it's immigration. And when Labour gets into government, as a result, the long-term vision of Britain will still be completely lacking. It's not as if Labour is all of a sudden going to give a completely new Um, era to British politics and is going to restore everything that was right and proper about the British system it seems that Britain and possibly the rest of the western world are in free fall and it's very difficult to see where that can stop
0: this seems like a moment to end today's conversation on the United Kingdom if you have any questions comments or regards make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today make sure to join us again next week when we burst the western bubble that is it from my side balder which closing quote did you pick for us today
1: i chose a quote by potter stewart who was a u.s supreme court justice and he said ethics is knowing the difference between what you have a right to do and what is right to do